This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Oh, what an audience. Great stuff. Oh, what, what an audience. Apparently the, the radio waves were, were buzzing around the place. Has anybody got a ticket for the Kelman event? The answer, of course, was no, because it's been sold out for ages. Great to see you all. Thanks very much for coming along in such goodly numbers. My name's Brian Taylor. I'm the day job. I'm the political editor of BBC Scotland. But for August, I revert to my first passion, my first love, literature and the arts. And, of course, delighted to, to welcome to this event tonight uh, a, a giant of, of literature, a, a, a huge figure in the arts. He has, of course, a back catalogue of powerful, evocative literary work, but his latest novel, I've got the proof copy here, James has got the full thing, the latest novel, Dirt Road, is just simply outstanding. It's a, a brilliant narrative, you know, a damn fine tale, a really intriguing story with brilliant characterization as well, and issues explored of, 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 of parenthood, of family, of connections, of loneliness, of race, and of passion versus pragmatism, but told in, in, a, in a simply outstanding way. Well, you know all that sort of thing, don't you? But uh, time for questions afterwards. But first, friends, will you join me in giving a very warm welcome to James Kelman, please. Okay, thanks. Uh, what my intentions are is to read. Uh, I'll read a, a section that will give a, a, a decent introduction to the novel. Uh, and afterwards, uh, obviously, I'll return. And Brian will uh, open up to, uh, talking or giving some questions and so on to, uh, to me and you also. Remembering that I'm kind of hard of hearing, so you're going to have to shout. Now, the novel uh, is about a young guy, Murdo. Murdo and his dad, uh, who travelled to the States. The, the, the basic story is that the father, Tom, we'll call him Tom, Tom's wife, uh, Murdo's mum, has, she's died uh, a few months earlier. And this is five years after uh, Murdo's sister, uh, Tom's uh, daughter, died also. And it's a, a cancer hereditary through the, through the female line. And Tom and his son Murdo haven't really got over this at all. Well, who could get over it? And he has this uh, uncle, the, the dad's uncle, Uncle John, who lives in Alabama. He's been gone for about 35 years or nearly 40 years. And he invites Tom and Murdo to come for a couple of weeks over uh, over to visit uh, in Alabama, and that's where they go. The novel begins with uh, the two of them uh, walking down. They're living somewhere. I've not been specific, but I, in mind, I was always thinking maybe of uh, around Cow. It, it could have been Danoon, it could have been Aaron, it could have been Rothsay, it could have been Millport, but where it requires a ferry to get to, uh, to Greenock or Gourock, around that area. Is where I was thinking of. Now, the character Murdo is also, I should say, he's a musician. His main instrument is accordion, and he's a proper musician uh, in the sense that 
He's been playing since he was about nine or ten, and he plays in a couple of bands, but he's not really picked up a, a, an accordion seriously since his mum died. And anyway, uh, and, and the relationship between him and his fathers is obviously quite tricky. Uh, and and it, in a sense, it's a typical teenage and, and parent relationship that he, he always kind of assumes, you know, that his, his father's been far too strict over petty details. And of course, the, the father always thinks that, uh, well, he needs to be told, otherwise you'll make these kind of foolish errors or you'll take risks and so on. And of course, that's precisely what happens. Uh, it's, you know, Tom makes a mistake when they, they fly into Mississippi because he takes the wrong damn bus. Uh, <laughs> rather, they fly into Memphis, Tennessee, and he takes a bus and they end up in Mississippi. This is a mistake because Tom's a kind of grumpy old guy. Well, he's not his old <laughs> I'm a grumpy old guy. He's a grumpy young guy. He's probably, <laughs> he's probably only about 45. You know. Anyway, it, they take the wrong bus and they end up in Mississippi. And they end up in this town, down in Highway 61. So people who know uh, the states of music would realize, well, that's a great blues area. If you're in Highway 61, you would expect to be meeting up with people who would know about Robert Johnson's song, Muddy Waters. That is not quite the case uh, of what happens in the novel. But while they're in this little town in Mississippi, uh, Murdo gets sidetracked. He leaves the bus station through a kind of accident and he wanders across the main street because he sees a sign. It's his first time in the States and he sees an old kind of kind of American antique shop across the road with wagon wheels and so on. So he goes across and there's a pawn shop next door. So he spends his time looking in the windows and he sees instruments and he sees tomahawks and six shooters, everything. So, I mean, who wouldn't stand there for, <laughs> for too long? And then he sees the bus coming out. He missed the damn bus. So he's going to go back to the bus station. Dad, I'm so sorry. Uh, and then his dad responds, and as you would perhaps expect the dad to respond. But the thing with Murdo is he's, he's not a kid. As, as, he, as he continually reminds his father, he's not 16, he's coming up for 17. <laughs> I'm coming up for 17, Dad. I could be married a year ago. You could be a grandfather. <laughs> you know. So anyway, they have to go to this little motel overnight. And nine o'clock at night, Dad's so tired, he just lies in the, the bed in this kind of place. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of, not a cheap motel as such, but it's not high-end, put it that way. So the boy goes out to this store because the two of them are starving, but at least Murdo's got the gumption to say, Dad, I'm going to that shop. It's opened, it's nine o'clock at night. We'll get some cheese and bread and we'll get, you know, so okay, his dad gives him $25 or something, and Murdo sets off, intrepid. And he gets into the store, and I'm going to pick it up about that bit from here. And he's looked around, and he's noticed that the girl, the cashier, is a girl not too much of his own age. The girl's name was Sarah. The taberner blouse said it, an old-fashioned kind of name. Murdo gazed at the floor not to look at her and then away towards the door. 
Really, she was beautiful. A girl's bare shoulders always looked good, but hers really, really did. And just a beautiful face. That's what you would say. A smooth face like you get with lasses, and her hair pulled back. So it was like her forehead was really smooth too, and how her neck went, and then her boobs too, like her cleavage. She was just really good looking. Then it was his turn, and she ignored him. She didn't even look at him. Although he was a customer, and she was a server, it was up, like, up to him. He was to talk. That was wrong, definitely. And he was blushing again. She lifted the grocery stuff out of his basket, scanning it through the machine, and then he noticed the prices on the screen. They were different, different to the labels. Everything was dearer, every single thing. Murdo wanted to see the, the total. It was way more than it should have been. She didn't say a word, not looking at him, just waiting for the money. Except he didn't have enough. It's too dear, he said, it's charging too much. Huh? Your machine is charging too much. She frowned, not understanding him. He lifted the first thing to show her, a packet of cheese. It dropped out his hand. She picked it up. He pointed at the price on the label. It says 4.49, but the machine charged more. I watched it. The same with everything. Your machine charged more. It's just like every single thing that added on money. She stared at him. Well, you're talking about tax, she said. You got tax in these things. Tax? Each one you got there has got the price and it's tax on top. Is that what you're talking about, tax? The girl held out her hand for the money. You'll see it on the receipt. It totaled more than $30. He didn't have enough. He showed her the 25. You'll need to take stuff out. Huh? Murdo passed her the lettuce and the yogurt. Does that make it? She started packing the food into a brown paper bag, placed two tins in a tray behind her. To the side of the cash register was a basket of loose bananas. She did a new cash total and gave him the receipt. He was waiting to see the change. A little more than one dollar in coins. How much for bananas, he said. Can I get two? Pardon me? Murdoch held out the change to her. Can I get two bananas, please? She packed in the bananas beneath the rest of the food and pushed the full paper bag across. She watched him lift it. Where are you from? Scotland. Scotland. Yeah. Mm. He held the brown paper bag close to his chest and exited the shop up along the street and the main road. And he started smiling because it was good. He felt that. Just everything, America, he liked it, it was different. Had she even heard of Scotland? <laughs> Maybe she hadn't. Strange to think, America, an American girl. Imagine, she smelled at him. Maybe she did, she could have. Murder would have liked it here. Mum would have liked it. Everything, everything away from the old. Fresh air and breathing, fresh breathing, everything. Murdo felt that strongly. He didn't care about stuff, school and the rest of it. They would all wonder where he was. Ha ha, here, thousands of miles away. It was great, just bloody great. And he walked fast, food to eat. Dad too, Dad must have been hungry. It was dark by now. 
he remembered the toilet rolls. In the motel reception office, the guy was on the computer. He had a wee pile of books beside him. He must have been a student. Murdo said, we don't have any toilet rolls. <laughs> huh? I mean, like, toilet rolls. You need toilet rolls, huh? Well, we don't have any. The guy turned and opened a cupboard door, and he withdrew and gave them to him. And do we get any towels? Huh, you want towels? Yeah, well, well there aren't any. Okay. Are we not supposed to get towels? Sure, yeah, who's in the room? Me and my father. The guy opened the, cu the cupboard door and gave two towels across. Thanks, said Murdo. Back in the room, the television was on, but he could see Dad had been dozing. Dad yawned, watching him come to the door, carry the towels and toilet rolls across. Murdo laid the food and the drink along the foot of the single bed and then unlaced his boots. Dad said, well done, son. Oh, the office guy was fine. He just gave me the stuff. Oh, good. What about the shop? How was the walk? Did you need anything? No. Dad yawned. Did you get the tea bags? <laughs> Murdo knelt to retie the bootlaces. <laughs> Did you not get any? No, but I will now, said Murdo, not the laces in his left boot. Don't bother. No, Dad, I'll go. No, you won't. Dad, you need tea. I don't. You do. <laughs> I don't. Dad, you need tea. Calm down. But Dad, I don't need tea. We have needs in this life, but tea isn't one of them. I'll survive. Dad lifted the towels and toilet paper and entered the bathroom. Murdo sat a moment and then switched on the television. He watched a while, prepared the food. When Dad came out of the bathroom, he saw it on top of the cupboard. Good stuff, he said. Well done. I'll go for tea in the morning. Don't worry about it. No, he said, I'll go. Last thing that evening, he went for a shave. He hadn't done it for a while. The mirror over the wash basin was more a large flat tile than it worked all right for looking into. There were these pimples around his chin. When he shaved, the safety razor cut them. It cut off the tops. The risk was more pimples. The blood out of pimple caused that to happen. It made them spread. You had to be careful if you scratched them. It could leave scars and brought plukes and boils. You were better patting your face dry with a towel instead of wiping it. Mum used to give him a separate towel. It was her told him about patting instead of wiping because wiping makes pimples spread. His weren't as bad as some, but he didn't have a heavy growth. Some guys did. Dark hair meant you shaved more. If you were black, you wouldn't go red at all. How could you? Then the pimples probably disguised them. You wouldn't see them as easy if you were black. He could never imagine that girl in the shop having pimples. Girls get pimples, but you don't think of it. Sarah, that was a good name. He liked her, and he could imagine her. She had good lips. People have different lips. He saw his own in the mirror, and what did they look like? Thin, thin lips. A guy he knew played the pipes, and he had thin lips, where you might have expected thick ones, because playing the pipes, it was what you would expect. Some guys were horrible looking, gross, the worst imaginable, yet they had girlfriends, wives and kids, so they got kissed. <laughs> Gay guys kissed each other. 
Everybody kisses and gets kissed. When he dried his face, there were spots of blood on the towel. The usual wee cuts round his chin and neck. He splashed on the cold water again, patted his chin dry. Dad had the television on, still. And he looked over. Murdo said, I was shaving. Ah. Oh. Murdo shrugged. He sat in the bed with his back to the top and watched the television. He was awake early next morning and he lay on in the bed, but only a minute. Then he was up and the clothes on. Dad was sleeping. Murdo didn't want to waken him. The bus was not until mid-afternoon, so it was okay Sunday morning. Dad liked long lies. The same when Murdo was alive, the two of them. There were times they didn't show until after 11 o'clock. It made you think of something else. So what, your mum and dad, if it was sex? Sex is sex. Murdo slugged milk out of the fridge and left it at that. Tea bags and Sunday breakfast. On his way out, he lifted a $10 note from dad's money, clicked shut the door. With luck he would be there and back before dad wakened. The same five cars were in the car park as last night, but a clear blue sky. Already it was warm, so peaceful. What other day could it be but a Sunday? Is there something beyond enjoyment? This was more than that. No cars hardly at all. He was hearing sounds, but quiet ones. Insects and birds. Mum would have loved it. The sensation that he was seeing everything, but nothing was seeing him. The road was here, and him walking it. Nobody else. Not Dad, not anybody. He didn't know anybody. He hadn't seen Uncle John and Aunt Maureen since he was a baby. He didn't remember them. Who else? Nobody. Except that lassie in the shop. If you could say he knew her. But he did. Sarah. And she knew him. Ha ha, it was true. She knew he was Scottish. Whatever age she was. Maybe older than him, but not much like if she was 17. Another couple of months and him too. And you were a man at 17. People said that. 16 is a boy, 17 a man. Well, what age are you? 16. Oh, wait till you're 17. <laughs> Would she be there? Maybe. Although late last night and now this morning, that was long hours to work. A girl like her, who was very, very good-looking and just like very, very pretty. She was still a girl working. So if it was long hours, that was the job. Otherwise, get another. He needed money. That was him too. He needed money. He needed to work. So he needed to leave school. Things came back to that. It didn't matter, America or Scotland. He needed to leave school. He turned off the main road, going along the side street, and hearing music. The closer he got, it was accordion. A waltz. Jeez, oh. People say about their ears playing tricks. With him, it was his brains, floating away someplace, thinking about whatever. He couldn't remember. Maybe his sister, maybe his sister was there. He never knew until he woke up, although he wasn't sleeping. Murdo in the music, walking in the beat. The beat was him walking, walking in the rhythm, going along the street and nobody else. This waltz playing, 
a nice one with a real good feel, that proper rhythm there for the dance, relaxed, yeah, that was the swing, doodle-a-doo, that feeling too, he'd been here already, or was here already, and not talking about last night, he approached the shop, it was open, nobody at the entrance, but instead of stepping onto the porch, he kept walking, following the music round the side of the building. A few trees were here, scrawny ones. He stayed behind them so they wouldn't see him. An old lady, the accordion player, sitting on a chair wearing a big hat, and a girl out of the shop, Sarah from last night, playing washboard, stepping from foot to foot. And another old lady sat next to her, not quite as old, but still quite old. The old lady and the girl, it was great seeing them. Something just beautiful about it. Seeing the two of them there in the music, the accordion itself, cream coloured and as fancy as you ever would see. Light glinting in the morning sun and that brilliant sound. What a sound. That was special. That was so special. And the girl scrubbed it along, facing the old lady who nodded her head on that two, three beat rhythm, glancing around at the folk watching, smiling a little bit only in the music, like how some musicians did that even when their eyes were shut. This lady, she kept on looking, seeing the people watching, keeping her eye on them. Murdo liked that. This was her playing. She was playing, she had her way, and there she was. Murder didn't move in case people saw him. He was not hiding, only keeping out the way. Now the other woman in the porch, she was not as old as a musician, but what age was she? Murder didn't know. She had a big hat on too, with a fancy sort of gauze stuff trailing down the back. She sat upright with her feet firmly to the floor, moving her right hand to beat time in a sharp movement like cutting or chopping. This was her right hand beating time, but it was the three beats and her wrist jerking, flicking, cutting, flicking. She could have been on drums the way she was doing it. This rigor she brought to it, which seemed to set up a response like you sometimes hear in music, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. A lot of musicians did that. They played something to you, and you played something to them. Stupid things. You should know better, you should know better. Behave yourself, behave yourself. Don't you start, I told you so. Don't you start, I told you so. No, you didn't, no, you didn't. I told you, I told you. That was the other musicians telling you. Giving you a wink and a nod of the head. It was two-way. You were on the melody. Behave yourself, that was the rhythm. The rhythm was telling you, behave yourself. Guys Murdo played with, they did a lot of that for fun. And it was fun. You liked it, and so did the audience. And the dancers danced, and off you go. The dancers danced, and away you go. Tricker, 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 tricker. And the song ended. Murdo wondered what would happen. But nothing did happen. Somebody clapped and somebody laughed, and the accordion player spoke to people. This was a community place, composed of back gardens running into each other. Some had fences and some didn't. 
kids played, whatever, girls throwing a ball, a couple of boys horsing around, a dozen folk sitting in chairs dotted about the grass. A few were standing. The accordion player, she spoke a few words to the girl, and then it was one, two, and away, straight into another. This was an upbeat number, a real drive and rhythm, but in that same style again. But then it stopped. The old lady broke off out of nothing, and she spoke a few words to the girl, and then played in from a couple of bars before, and stopped again, then restarted, and off they went. They were rehearsing. Of course, this was the real stuff. You knew that just by listening. It was so obvious. This old lady was special. Jeez, oh, murder was chuckling and felt like laughing. There was a lyric this time. The old lady in vocal driving it on, and jeez, she really was something. God, and the way people responded to her, they knew. Murdo couldn't make out the words and then realised why. It was French. She was singing in French, maybe some English. The girl and the lady with the fancy goddess hat were, they were chorusing the line, chorusing. It was a new kind of music for Murdo and exciting how it rocked along and that humour and funky, just brilliant for playing and for dancing. The kids were jigging about. Murdo chuckled and then was startled. A guy was standing next to him and right there in his face, angry looking, so angry looking, Murdo stepped back. The guy spoke in a low grunting voice. What you doing here, huh? What you doing here? You shouldn't be here. This ain't your place. Uh, 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 it was just a, uh, uh, this ain't your place. What are you doing around here? What you spying on us? The music had stopped. The guy stepped forward and he pointed Murdo out to them, and people were staring. Murdo was embarrassed at being caught, but he was not spying if anybody thought that. Why would he spy? It was the music. He saw the girl on the side and he tried to smile, but he couldn't. But he called her, I'm not spying. Now she recognised him and she raised her arm. Hey, I know him. He came in a store last night. Well, this ain't the store, said the guy. Mm. Oh, he's foreign, Joe. Hear him talk? He's not American. The lady with the fancy goes hat said, Oh, the poor fellow. <laughs> American, man, Joe. He didn't know about tax, said the girl. <laughs> Both women laughed. The guy who had caught Murdo was still annoyed, but no longer angry looking. He was older than Murdo, but not that much. Murdo shouldn't have been there at all because it was other people's gardens. He knew that. It was just the music. I heard the music, Murdo said. I was going to the shop. I heard it and just uh, I followed it round. The two women found this funny. The accordionist said, Hey now, children, he's enjoying my music. You think I didn't see him? I saw him from early. He's audience. You think I won't mm -hmm. see audience? She don't get that much nowadays, said the other lady. The accordionist raised her hand. I saw him the moment he came in these trees there. She studied Murdo. You like the music? It's great. Great, huh? She gazed down. Yeah. He shrugged. I play too. 
She continued to gaze at him. Oh no, she said, I know you play. I saw how you were looking. What you play, boy? Cajun? You play Cajun? Eh, come up here. Murder went immediately to the porch. You Irish? No, eh, Scottish. Scotland, said Sarah. It's another country, said Murdo. It's near Ireland. And the music's like not too different. I mean, like, eh, Murdo gestured at the, the older lady's accordion. I would play. If you think, I mean, eh, if you, want, if you wanted me to, I mean. Murdo stopped, aware of Sarah watching him, and he blushed immediately and tried to stop it, but couldn't. Last night she was almost angry. Now she was friends. And really, she was beautiful. Her name too, Sarah, an old name. Old names were good. The name Sarah, it was right. As soon as she said it, they knew it was hers. The accordionist made a comment in French to the lady with the fancy hat, and then studied Murdo. And she nodded to Sarah. Go get him a box, honey, get him the turquoise. Sarah went to the house behind the porch. So, boy, what's your name? Murdo. Murdo. She grinned, stressing the R. Well, now, Murdo, my name is Miss Monsier. People call me Queen Monsier. Can you say that? Queen Monsier. And this here is Aunt Edna. Welcome, said the other lady. Queen Monsier waved at the guy who had surprised Murdo. He is Joel. He's my grandson. Now Sarah and Rockboard is his sister. Sarah is my granddaughter. So now you know us. So how come you are here? Well, I was going to the shop, like, like I mean the store. No, no, boy, I'm talking here, in this place, this town. This is Allentown, huh? How did you come by here? Oh, well, what happened? We missed the bus. Me and my father, eh, well, we missed the bus. We're, so we're just passing through. Aunt Edna clapped her hands. Now he's got it. Queen Monsey chuckled. Sarah returned. She was wearing a hat now, a daft round thing, but it looked good and made you smile to see. She held the accordion out to him. The top she was wearing didn't have sleeves, so her shoulders were bare like last night. Thanks, said Murdo. He took it from her, pulled it on and touched the keys. Queen Monsey said, now Murdo, you play how you play. The accordion was tuned to B-flat. He hadn't played for a while, and his fingers were not flexing right. A strange sensation too, like the skin on his fingers was too tight or something, and he was wanting to widen the gap between the tips of his fingers and the fingernails. People were watching, but he was okay. They were wanting him to play properly. He knew they were, and he wanted them to hear. That was that and he played a jig he'd learned a few months earlier. He was still with the band at that time, before Mum's health deteriorated. It was fine, he knew it was fine. Some kids were here and he hoped he might dance. They didn't, but it was okay anyway. And Edna applauded. Bravo, Monsieur! Queen Monsey said, you want to play it again? The same one, the same one. Off he went the second time and he saw her preparing to play, and then she did. 
in she came. She played a rhythm almost like straight into him. Brilliant. Myrtle played a jig a little differently now. Shifting ground was how he thought of it. But it meant him doing fast steps. Mum had described it as capering. She enjoyed it when he capered. He sometimes did it with the band, jigging about just depending how it went and if he was taking the lead. If he was playing a jig, he was doing a jig. That was how he thought of it. It just meant going these fast steps. That was how you, you were not just playing for the tune, you were in it. He did it here with Queen Monsey, and she played it straight back to him. Her name fitted a real queen, real music, real style. And she played another one of hers with Sarah now on Le Foitois, which was rubbing, uh, rub board in French. And it was a fast number, swinging, rocking, just so good. Queen Monsey looked for Myrtle coming in like she had in the jig, and he was ready for it. She was fast, thinking of somebody old. She said how she was slowing down, not her brains, her fingers, but Myrtle didn't think so. My God, that's right, as she said, but that was a joke. She was not slow at all, not lightning fast, but near. She was near to that. Zydeco was the name of the music. Myrtle knew nothing about it. He had never, ever even heard the name before. He had heard Cajun, but not music so much as a place, like a land or a country, the country of Cajun. But he had never heard the word Zydeco. And Sarah was laughing, and that daft hat she was wearing, it was so, how would you describe it? Mother didn't know, except it made you grin. It would have made anybody grin, like a sailor's cap. Back home, you saw rich guys in yachts wearing them, Sarah was great. She was fun. A real lassie just laughing. That was her. She was just like special. You knew it. Anybody would. The real granddaughter. She was Queen Monsey's real granddaughter. She led now on another up-tempo number, a smashing chorus, and Sarah joined in, emphasizing the freshness, the Frenchness, and it was sexy how they did it, and it made you laugh. Really good fun. Ooh la la, something, something. Come see, come sa, something, something. I'll just finish up. Fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant, James. Okay. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, a, a, a short extract there from a superb book, but you're getting some of the elements of it, you know, the relationship with the father. I, I heard some sympathetic titters from the audience when James mentioned teenage and, and parent uh, relations, obviously some experience out there in the audience as well, and, and the, the beginnings of, of new discoveries for, for Mardo. Also, you, you've got a couple of examples there of a, of a style that's throughout the book of soliloquies. Um, just explaining his life and his circumstances, but with, with musical touches there as well, and a real dose of humour which percolates throughout the, the whole of the book. Just, just uh, I'm going to go out to the audience in, in a second, but just one, one thing, Jim, you spent a, a, a fair spell yourself in, in America. Is, is that other experiences from your own period here, or perhaps just the musical connections? Or, or, or no, what? Uh, I'm not trusting the mic, just I was okay in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah fine. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, so obviously there, there was uh, uh, myself and, and my own family. Uh, we, we emigrated to the States when I was uh, 17. Wow. And, uh, which was 1963, uh, and came back uh, a few months later. Uh, so, yeah, these experiences, 
being 17 in the States was difficult for me, having left school at 15 and I was already into an apprenticeship and to land in the States at 17 and be told you can't work until you're 18, mm. it was a, a real shock to me, uh, it was not possible to go back to work again, mm -hmm. uh, rather it was not possible to go, to go to school, that was beyond beyond a nightmare, it was simply impossible. Yeah, so you were caught really in, yeah. in between So uh, between I basically spent about three or four months walking around Los Angeles, I think, that was all I did, you know. Some, uh, some would say that's not so job. bad, but they, you know, <laughs> I understand. Well, looking for a job. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the music, I mean, the real music, Cajun, uh, Zydeco, you know, blues all, all coming through there as, as, as well. Yeah, well, I've always, I've always been interested, I've always liked the music. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure most people in the audience here in, in Scotland I, and also in, place in Ireland, people are, are very, you know, uh, moved and, and involved in what we might call lo very loosely Americana mm -hmm. and all the different forms of music. So these forms of music, uh, they've been around for myself since, since I, I was young, really. And for the participants here, it's, it's a way of life. It's, it's them, you know, as, as you explained. Yeah, it, the, well, you know. I think the, one of the things about the novel in a way is I think it's also, in a sense, a, a kind of portrait of the artist novel. Mm -hmm. I think Murdo's a, to me, he's, he's a kind of real artist. Uh, he's, a very, he's, a, he's a serious musician, although he's young. And that get, does get picked up by other people. Queen Monsey, uh, she, she picks that up uh, about him through the, perhaps through the quality of attention he brings to, to yeah. and focus. And again, in the novel, this happens when he gets up to Alabama, him and his father, the day after. Uh, I always thought it would just been outside of uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, and that area, which is just, you know, if you think of the map there and the, the Appalachians and the Blue Mountains up there. Mm -hmm. So that kind of uh, Spain and East Coast goes right up to mm -hmm. uh, Washington, D.C right down through North Carolina in these places and it was a very big kind of Scottish uh, tradition there yes. from early, early times of immigration, Yes, uh, uh, 17th century immigration. There and down, down to Texas as, as, as Well they as used well. to talk about down uh, Virginia there, yeah. people uh, from uh, the Hebrides and so on uh, would, would land there and they would find some African-Americans talking in Gaelic in the docks. Right, but Murdo has brought his very Scottish father with him, or rather the other way around, and while Murdo is, is, is thinking about passion, thinking about the arts, his dad's saying, how much will you earn for this? Where will you eat? Where will you stay? Know, and yet he doesn't seem an unsympathetic character, the father. You, 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 you understand where he's coming from as well, as well as Murdo's artistic passion. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. Yeah. I think it, there can be, a, it would be interesting to compare maybe uh, a teenager or a young person reading the novel ah, yeah. uh, with somebody who's the parent of teenagers. Yeah, uh, yeah the parent might say, quite right, where are you going <laughs> to spend the night type of thing? Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's, go, let's go to audience. Let, let's get some questions from people in, in, in the audience, please. The lights come up. See a hand raised there, please. Let's see, and, and there. So let's take lady here first, please. If a microphone can come your way, and then we'll get a mic to our friend there as well, please. Thanks. Hello, um, thanks for that. I'm fascinated by um, how you did any research into um, exploring this place again. Was it largely based on memory or recent trips or did you use anything like, say, Google Maps? 
exploring the place in, in America, the, 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 the sites in America. Yeah. Yeah. How did yeah. you, um, did you, to what extent did you rely upon memory or did you look at contemporary ways of exploring this no, place I'll, from I'll, a distance? I'll, well, both in a way, really. Uh, because that, that particular part of the States, I don't know, really. I mean, the, the place that uh, I, I know is California and Texas. And although, in fact, we did go to Louisiana, uh, my, uh, my wife, Marie, and myself, uh, to a, a, a really great festival there, it's not, an, uh, it's, it's not an area I've driven through and know all inside out or anything. But I do, I mean, when we were young, or when I was young, uh, we, we came back from, uh, we did Route 66 coming back from Los Angeles. Wonderful. So I've always been kind of interested in the Route 66 road and know, th know that road. So for, for me, uh, the, the interest is there. And having driven, uh, we, we, we did do some driving around in Texas. So the, the drive between Texas and, and Louisiana is one that I, I kind of, I know that road. And, but going up the way, I, I don't know the, the roads up there, and I worked with the map all the time. The map, uh, we, I have a, the, the map that, that take the, in the novel that the murder refers to, yeah. there, are, there is a scene with him and his, his new Aunt Maureen, uh, who's uh, in her late 60s, Aunt Maureen, or around 70. And she's doing something like maybe the ironing, and, and he's, he's just discovered the road map, and, yeah, and he'd be used to working with his, his, his phone or his iPhone or whatever. He's not used to this kind of, and he finds it very exciting. You know, it's like uh, maybe a hundred page long, the, the road atlas, you know. Uh, so he, uh, and I, I kind of work from that. I have such an atlas yeah, at home. Yeah, it's lovely. Mother so much enjoys it. He sits every night going well, through Well, he goes through it to find all the Scottish places. names. Yeah, find you know. <laughs> So we'd, he can't believe it. We had a question here, please. Yeah, and then looking for more hands as well. But yes, please. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I really love this novel, but I, I've read all this, all your stuff, obviously, and... Uh, this seems to be doing something very new with the personal and the political. I, I like the way you said that it's like a portrait of the artist novel, but it's also the portrait of a political growth, of political consciousness where family, identity, race. At the moment when he thinks about his mother, he also thinks what, it would, it like, what would it be like to be a gay guy without ever thinking he would be. It's as if... As if the personal and the political are doing new things in this novel that mm. say weren't in now that it was uh, 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 and so on or the earlier wonderful f fiction or a disaffection even something new uh, am i right or uh, or do you feel not i think it's a good question is it a new departure jim to some some extent no well thanks for your the comments you made too that uh, what this is, the sec this is the second novel I've written based in the States, as you'll be aware. But this novel, although a lot of it is kind of un... Uh, uh, it's, un it's not referred to directly, it's almost in parentheses in the novel, are these a a issues around immigration yes. and, and past immigration in the States. Uh, and my own family, like many people here, uh, is almost classic in terms of immigration uh, in, in, in both, both my mother's and my father's side. 
my father's side especially uh, from from Lewis and uh, and the Western Hebrides uh, his mother and and my his father my grandfather uh, from that part of Aberdeenshire uh, again where people don't associate with clearances but those people who know Aberdeenshire around that area clearances are, are, are really uh, very very much part of that history there so these areas that I don't really I kind of what, just maybe hint at I don't know but I would like to I hope they are part of a subtext there they're, but they're older times of uh, yes. immigration. Even Queen Monsier says she's original French, not Cajun French. You know, the, 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 well, the, the, the thing about uh, uh, Queen Monsier, those of you who know uh, anything about uh, this part of the States, they come from uh, West uh, Louis, uh, Louisiana, which is just over the border in Mississippi. If you, look, if you think of there, Lake Charles, big long lake going up from, it's very close to East Texas. Uh, well, obviously, uh, borders on it, but that part of uh, Louisiana is, is associated with the Creole people. Yeah. The Creole people were also African, but they were part of uh, Louisiana when when it was a French uh, French colony. Yeah, that's really So before the what they call the Louisiana Purchase, which I think was about 1813, that was a deal done now the kind of irony and it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's ironic but what you have there is uh, the migration from the maritimes and uh, the, uh, the atlantic seaboard in canada so newfoundland uh, uh, nova scotia and, uh, around that area where the cajun people originate from uh, old Ar arcadia which is a mix of Brittany people irish and scottish that's uh, basically the three uh, the great Dewey Balfour, the legend uh, in his family, is that the Balfour family, in fact, used to be Balfours. Ah. Uh, in fact, uh, it was a, a Scottish originally. That, uh, I mean, those of you who haven't worked this out, and most people haven't, Monsier, if you think of what that would be in Scottish, it's Menzies. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody fucking knows that. <laughs> So obviously in Glasgow, if it, if it just went down Menzies, somebody would go, now, uh, I, I, I usually write a lot and then take stuff out. Well, there is a section I've taken out of this novel. I should publish it somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, and it's a play, it's a play o on the name because, you know, the dad's a bit of a staid Scottish guy. And uh, uh, the girl Sarah, her mum and dad at one time invite them for a meal. In an earlier section, they go for the meal. Right in the novel they don't, uh, the finished novel. But in an early section they do go, and, and the dad, the the, the dad Sarah's dad, Queen Monsey's son-in-law, he's a kind of jazz fanatic, you know. Like, and a lot of jazz fanatics could very well be Scottish. In fact, a lot are Scottish, mm -hmm. but they have that same kind of Calvinist approach to music, as a lot. <laughs> anyway, purist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing yeah. is, uh, uh, Sarah shows a uh, murder one of Queen Monsey's albums when she was playing regularly and he sees it and he says, okay, that's Menzies. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he says to his dad, Dad, it's Menzies. And his dad, of course, well, no, son, me call it Menace. <laughs> 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 but the thing about that is like, the son, the son Joel, you know, you heard him, there's a kind of oh, angry guy. 
But Joel, of course, who gets to know Murdo, and he's, he's not that much older than Murdo, and he has quite a big partner in Joel. Joe. But he, again, does a lot of, has a lot of fun uh, poking fun at his father, and that's part of the family stuff. That he kind of pokes fun at his dad, so as soon as uh, Murdo's dad says, no son, we call it Mingus, Joel goes, Charlie Mingus. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's like uh, it was Charlie Mingus Scottish, you know. <laughs> but and although I mean Charlie Mingus, a great political guy, a great a great musician, the ba bass player. But uh, there's another wee side issue, me further. But I remember I was doing something before, and I was doing something in San Francisco, and I flummoxed the audience by saying to them, uh, "What is it that me and Dizzy Gillespie have in common?" And of course nobody knew, and I said, well, what we have in common is that both our grandmothers spoke Gaelic, and neither of us did, ah. neither of us did. And that, that is, uh, again, is that sense in which uh, this is a, an undercurrent, a yes. hope in, in the novel. <laughs> Very clearly. Because that aspect of immigration where the shame of, of being a Gaelic speaker, that none of my, neither my father nor my uncles spoke Gaelic, yeah. my grandmother, was of a generation where you didn't kind of, it, it was not something that you gave to your, your family. And, and my grandmother, uh, her two sisters, my great aunts, they were both like my, my great aunt, uh, uh, Mary and Margaret, but she was the secretary of the Gaelic Society in Seattle for 30 years. Oh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Who's next with, anyway. with, a, with a question, please? See hand raised there. Is that Looking for more as well, please, but we'll take the gentleman there and then away at the back. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask a, a wee question about the plotting. You said that you, you write quite a lot and you, you, uh, then you, you kind of edit. Uh, on, on reading the book, uh, I, was, I was actually taken surprise by surprise by the ending. And without giving anything away, <laughs> without, giving, without giving anything away, I'm, I'm, let's say that I'm a bit of a pessimist. Uh, and I wondered if, if you had alternative endings before, but without giving anything away, of course, uh, before you decided on the way to actually end no, but, yeah, the piece. No, it's a good question, right? It's a good question. And e endings are really, obviously really important to myself too. And the way endings work, when I know that they are working, and it happened also in how late it was and a couple of other novels, the ending, the best kind of ending for me, always takes me by surprise. And it's almost, uh, you, you put it away and say, I can't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> that can't be right now. <laughs> you know, and you, and you have to go away and re-read it, and you kind of tend to read it like, what? <laughs> I can't believe that's working. <laughs> <laughs> well, you obviously surprised our friend here. He was expecting a, a different outcome. Let's take one from Wade. That's way. how I know it's working, though. <laughs> take one because from... the other thing with that, uh, Brian, just uh, to Jim, say, uh, on, Jim, yeah. you continually try and do something else with it and you find you can't. So you go back to the so one you had. that kind of, yeah. shocked you, yeah? yeah. Let's, take, let's take, we'll try and get a few more in there and looking for more hands as well, please. Right at the back, yeah. Jim, I picked up a while back on uh, the film that Kenny Glenan was making of your screenplay, and it seems to relate directly to this. It seems very similar, and I wondered if you can talk about that, if there is a 
a story behind that. The first part? The sc the sc you're reading the, the, interesting, the film that derived from your screenplay that was being... Yeah. That Kenny Glenan was directing. Yeah. So I'm looking for it. I can't see where you are. Well, it's very it's back, it's it. Tam Jim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, way, the way this novel began, it began from basically a conversation with myself and Kenny. Kenny, uh, who's a, a fine director, people might know Kenny Glenan's work, but Kenny was wanting to, uh, to involve me and the two of us in doing a, a screenplay of the novel of mine, Kieran Smith Boy. And we'd had a couple of discussions about it. And one discussion we had, Kenny just happened to, we started off when he arrived, uh, have a coffee or whatever. And Kenny was saying that I'd met an interesting guy in Edinburgh, a musician. And he was telling Kenny that when he was a, a, a young fellow, around about 14, he had uh, he'd visited the States for a couple of weeks with his dad. His dad, I think, was a, a evangelical, a, a pastor with an evangelical church. And he, he was giving a couple of uh, lectures or he was preaching a bit down, uh, down south in the States. And the boy, as I say, was 14. Uh, and it was round about that part of Mississippi. And there, that was when he, he, he first heard the blues, you know. That was when he first got in touch with that music. That was the kind of, the, the basic thing. And then I think Kenny and I would, would be away talking about the potential screenplay of Kieran Smith Boy. But the thing about it was that, that that's about eight years ago. And it coincided with a period when, I think I had just come back from California, myself and Marie there. I, I'm not quite sure about that. It's about eight or nine years ago. And we'd spent about, I'd spent about six months there up in, in, in California. And while I was there, I had finished some work, including the big long essay I did for the short story reissue, an, uh, an old pub near the Angel, which I wrote these short stories, my first collection when I was about 22, 21, 22, 23, 24. And while I was doing the introduction, a big long one, I, I, I was kind of thinking about a lot of my experiences when I was 17 uh, in Los Angeles and being, being in California again, which it was, it was a kind of odd experience uh, because of these associations. Flashback to something. So I think between having, you know, that kind of the germ of that, plus the reality of, of, that, of that aspect of my life, and also the knowledge of Texas, I think that's really important. And the music, the music side of it Always was. the music, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, the, the, there's a part in the novel that's maybe not as strong the novel as it, as, as it could be, but there's a part in the novel where the young guy, well, I think it is it's strong. <laughs> But he, he, he plays in a session up north, uh, rather uh, up in, uh, in Alabama. And he, 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 plays, he plays with people who are, you would associate, uh, people in here, people will have heard of uh, Doc Watson. Doc Watson, kind of uh, a Bill Monroe and Hazel Dickens uh, uh, kind of music. Uh, 
the early brothers used to talk about how their family used to play stuff and but it's that kind of music you would call American folk or yes. American folk, Americana, uh, bluegrass. Uh, Dorothy, a lot of Dorothy Parton stuff coming from that. Uh, but it's really very powerful stuff. Well, he plays music there, uh, especially coming from, in my, in my thoughts at the time, were uh, Doc Watson's family album and links I was making there between how Doc Watson's father-in-law played fiddle when you when you hear the album, it's uh, it's, uh, it's Doc Watson's father-in-law. Anyway, it, it struck me that the way he plays fiddle, there was such a Scottish feel to it. That's amazing. Uh, and if you read obviously liner notes, I, I read a lot of liner notes. So through that you find out Bill Monroe's an old Lewis family. I didn't know his oh. family, and you find out people like uh, Doc Watson's family and so on. You you get Scottish connections that. Uh, they're always kind of interesting to me, but it, was, it made me think when I first uh, listened to Doc Watson, and I remember that really quite well, <laughs> because I, when I was about 20 or 21, I won an album in a game of cards <laughs> <laughs> uh, down in London, uh, and I was playing cards with, with friends of mine, some are still friends now, <laughs> actually. And I'm talking about 1967. And uh, me, me and another pal of mine, we kind of tried to hold the bank playing at 21 at Pontoon and Blackjack. We only called it Pontoon in 1967. But anyway, we were playing Pontoon and this guy uh, lost, of course, and, and he owed us a fiver. <laughs> One of his in the audience just now, you think. Right, Donald, where are you? But anyway, Donald was from Aberdeen. <laughs> now, the thing of it is, Donald says, well, I'm afraid, Jimmy, I, don't have, I ain't got the dough. You know, well, he, he did have dough, the bugger just wouldn't pay up. <laughs> but he said, I'll give you this album. And it was that, you know, some of you might know, that, that that's that beautiful Newport album where you hear Doc Watson playing three, plays three numbers on it. The Balfour Brothers, Dewey Balfour, it was just called the Balfour Brothers at that, at that stage. This is the 1964 Newport Festival. And uh, there's, there's a few good people on that album. So that was where I first heard Doc, uh, Doc Watson. So, so I mean, that's like going back to the, 1967. You still got the album, yeah. yeah. You, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You never got the fiver, I take it. No, 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 no. I never got the fiver. No, 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 no. But then if you go on eBay now, the album's probably worth about 100 quid or something. Precisely, so. <laughs> Do, do, Donald but then the fiver's probably worth do, Donald's been touched demanding his thing. Friends, we're going to have to call it uh, a halt there. We've gone forever. But would you give us uh, a couple of seconds? We'll pop next door to the, the signing tent. I'm sure you all want to buy the novel and get uh, uh, Jim to sign it uh, for you as well. Uh, so if you give us uh, the time to get out there, but in the meantime, will you join me in giving a very warm vote of thanks to James Kelman? More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.